Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone today. Let's, let's just jump right into it. You guys have all heard about the Adams Family, right? And yeah, it's not, the, it's not the Adams Family you might be thinking about, how that little jingle or introduction song go. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. Is that, is that the way it starts? No, it's not, not that Adams Family. I'm talking about a different Adams Family. Got to go a little bit further back in time. Um, these guys, uh, John Adams is on the left. He was the second president of the United States. And then it ended up being his son, uh, John Quincy Adams, who is on his right, who uh, um, I don't remember in sequence which president he was, but, you know, a couple presidents later uh, is, is when he served a term as the president of the United States. Well, I just wanted to get you thinking along those family lines, okay? Because the story I'm going to tell you actually doesn't involve either one of them, but it involves the next Adams, who uh, wasn't a president. His name was Charles, Charles Francis Adams. He uh, kept a journal, and one of the entries uh, on a particular day that he had made in his journal, uh, which we still have today, um, reads like this. Went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. Okay? So uh, just, just a little comment, you know, that he was making regarding that day. The thing is, though, um, apparently journaling was a pretty common thing back in those days. I know some do it today, but uh, I think there maybe was more people doing it in certain respects back then. And so then if you go another generation of Adams, you read uh, in a journal by Brooke Adams, who was Charles Francis's son. Charles Francis is the one who wrote, went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. Well, his son, Brooke Adams, and we still have his journal today, on that very same day, he wrote this, went fishing with my father, the most wonderful day of my life. Oh, I heard that. Yeah, there's something there that would be good for us to reflect on a bit. And it very much does a good job of kind of launching us into what it is that we're going to be talking about today. Because the reality of the matter is, um, lives today are busy. Now, maybe for you, because I know for some people, during the pandemic and the shelter in place and all of this kind of stuff, I know it slowed down for a percentage of people. And maybe you were one of those people that it slowed down for during that time. But uh, here we are coming out the other side of that. Things are opening up more and more. Activities are, are picking up, um, getting much more normal-like. And probably in no time flat, they're going to be very much normal. And, and so the pace of life is going to seem to be increasing. It either is right now or it's going to be feeling that way very soon. As a matter of fact, for a number of people, the busyness of your life is probably going to reach an all-time high. 
Because for certain people, the way they're wired and maybe the profession they're in and all, they're going to really feel a need for making up for lost time. And they feel like this last year, there was a lot of lost time in business and stuff like this. And so, so some people are, who maybe were fairly disciplined, not burning the candle at both ends, maybe now there's going to be a whole lot more temptation to be doing that, trying to make up for, for what uh, was lost out on over this past year. And so what it is that we're going to be talking about today, I think it's very timely. I think it's timely for this message any time, uh, any year. But I think right now, it is especially time, timely. The series of messages that we are finishing up today is just a three-part series, Building Strong Families. And kind of the premise that all of this is being built on is the understanding that uh, strong families don't just automatically happen. Just because a bride and a groom say, I do, in front of a judge or a preacher, um, doesn't mean that... that uh, everything's going to turn out really well. Or as soon as they start having kids, they're going to automatically have a strong family. I mean, most of you guys in here, you're old enough to know that's not the way it works. There's not anything automatic about it. And that's why this series of messages is relevant. Two Sundays ago, we talked about one of the most important components to a healthy family, and that is forgiveness. Jesus was asked, how many times should I forgive my brother? when he sins against me seven times? And Jesus' answer, basically, my paraphrase is, don't keep track. His literal answer was 70 times seven. But I think that was his way of not saying, well, the exact number you're looking for is 490 times. No, I think Jesus was saying, just keep forgiving. Be generous in forgiving. And, uh, um, and man, if that's important in life, in relationships, that is especially important in our homes, in our marriages, with our children, and with our parents. If your family tends to hang on to hard feelings, hurt feelings, then your family is going to end up paying the price for that. The relationships within your family will be impacted. Last Sunday, we talked about good communication, healthy communication. And one of the things that I was trying to really drive home is that it doesn't begin with our talk. It's, uh, I think, fairly normal for people to think of it that way, that, uh, well, really good, healthy communication means you're able to speak well. Well, that's not where it begins. It begins with listening well. And so we spent an entire message on that. If you did not hear uh, either one or both of those messages, you can go online and catch up. Today, our focus is going to be talking about time, how we spend time. Sea turtles are interesting. In some respects, we share some things in common with them, but in other respects, we are very, very different than sea turtles. They say that it is not uncommon <coughs> for a sea turtle to live to be 100 years old. Okay, uh, Some humans live to be 100, but they're in the minority. You know, most of us don't quite make it that long. Um, so that, in that side of things, it's kind of impressive that sea turtles can live so long. But one of the things that isn't so impressive involves their hatchlings. You know, when, when they have all these, these eggs that are hatching, that have been laid, 
you know, these hatchlings, they never see their mother. They never see their father. Um, this is a picture of them making um, a mad dash for ocean water, as only a turtle can make a mad dash. But anyway, they're making a mad dash for ocean water. And, and uh, there is a reason for that. Um, baby uh, sea turtles, they operate largely on instinct because they don't have the opportunity to learn things from a parent. Um, so it's just a matter of, of instinct. But their survival uh, relies upon that instinct, but it also re relies largely on luck. And this is one of the uh, reasons that we can be very, uh, consider ourselves very fortunate we're not like sea turtles, is that we are told that only one hatchling out of every thousand ever lived to adulthood. You just think about that for a moment. Every thousand sea turtles that are hatched, only one of them will ever become an adult. They're kind of at the bottom of the food chain. The reason they're making mad dash, seagulls. You know, because they will certainly prey on them, pelicans, seagulls. Uh, but once they get in the water, it doesn't get a whole lot safer there for them. And the vast majority of them just, they don't live very long for that reason. That's not how it works with humans, though. We uh, are fortunate because uh, uh, we can grow up with parents and we can be protected by parents. And, and, uh, and usually it takes, what, we're about 18 years, you know, of growing up before we leave the home and get out on their own. I know that's how long it took for me. That's how long it took for Colette. There may be some of you in here. It, it, you were out of the home sooner than that, and then there were others of you um, that uh, um, it took a little bit longer. You know, in fact, there might be a couple in here that are like, yeah, how much longer is it going to be before Junior leaves home? Um, you know, I, I had a, a really good friend that during elementary school that was, I considered them my best friend. Uh, they lived close by. Their family is very similar to ours. Our families interacted a lot. We had five kids in our family. They had six in theirs. And, and, uh, and like in my family, you know, as soon as everybody turned 18, they were leaving, leaving the home, maybe 19, um, but, and soon getting married, you know, following that. And the same thing was happening in my friend's family with all of his siblings. But it didn't happen that way with him. He just stayed home, and he stayed home, and he stayed home. And when he was 35 years old, he got engaged, and his mom and dad left home. And uh, <laughs> honest to goodness truth, you know, he is 60 years old today, and he's still living at home and with a wife and a couple kids. But, uh, um, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny how that works. But, but we do get the benefit of being able to grow up in a home environment with a parent or with parents uh, to be able to uh, uh, help us and to help us to get, hopefully, a good start in life. There, there's a lot that goes into human growth and development, and probably one of the best comments that I have ever read comes from uh, a Dr. Riddle, Dr. Fritz Riddle. He uh, was a leading psychiatrist whose career spanned 50-some years during the 20th century. He is passed away now. 
But he specialized in dealing with troubled youth. And he used to say to groups of parents um, when, when he would meet, like in the picture that's taken here, is he would say, I want everyone to get out their paper and their pencils. I'm going to tell you three of the most important things you will ever need to know about raising your children. And so he would wait. He'd say, everybody ready? Yes, as you know, women were digging through their purse and men were pulling pins and stuff out of their pockets. And uh, he goes, okay, all right, I think we're ready. Three of the most important things you will ever need to know about raising your kids. And then he would say, example, example, example. Now, it's not quite that simple uh, because obviously there's more that goes into it. There is nurture, there is discipline, there's other other aspects of parenting that goes into it. But without a doubt, this is probably what carries the most impact long term. I like the way uh, it says in Proverbs chapter 13, these words, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Now, normally, when we think about an inheritance, for most of us, we're thinking about, you know, a home, we're thinking about an estate, we're thinking about money, maybe some land, you know, stuff like that, and that that's what this verse is talking about. And in part, I do think that that probably is what is being included there, but I don't think it's limited to that. I think it goes beyond that. And so what I want to do is I want to spend just a moment here in the early part of the message kind of talking about some of what the more uh, of this inheritance can include, all right? So what are your children and grandchildren inheriting from you? A blueprint for marriage, perhaps? Yeah, it's really not a question. It's more of a statement. I think that is what they're inheriting from you. When I do premarital counseling, which, you know, I did notice I do have a couple in here that have just started that, you know, with me. So, so I, I'm going to kind of let the cat out of the bag here. And so they'll know what my intentions are when this session comes up. But uh, one of the things that we do in premarital counseling is we spend at least half of a session uh, just talking about our future in-laws. And especially if that family happens to be a part of the church, it gives me a good opportunity to get some inside information on a family. But uh, no, actually, what, what, what I do is, is I ask, let's say, for example, the groom. I'll ask the groom, all right, you guys have been dating now. You've kind of been a thing for X number of months or years. Um, so you've had an opportunity during this time to get to know your future mother-in-law and father-in-law. Just talk to me about them a little bit. What do you know? What have you learned about them? And so, you know, there's a little bit of a summary and everything that's given. But then I kind of start steering it a little bit more. And I'll say, how do they treat each other? You know, what have you observed in the way that they talk, you know, to each other, how they respond to one another? You know, how, how does, how does uh, your future father-in-law, how does he uh, uh, talk about your future mother-in-law when she's not in the room? And how does it work with your future mother-in-law? How does she talk about, you know, your future father-in-law when he's not in the room? And, uh, and then, then I'll say, have you ever noticed when they've been frustrated, you know, and just, you know, kind of pressed, maybe in the time crunch or something, what the dynamics are? How do they treat um, each other in the heat of the moment, you know, when something's going on? 
And, and, and what eventually where I'm going with my questions is if I'm talking to the groom at that time is I really rifle in on his future mother-in-law. And I say, how does she treat her husband? How does she respond to her husband? What do you notice about her attitude? And, and you know, when he makes one of his corny jokes, how does she respond to that? And, you know, I start asking, you know, specific questions like that. And, and then I do the same thing with the bride and in regards to the groom's parents asking very similar questions. And then after I've done all that, I explain why. And, and the why is that the most concentrated classroom of learning as to what it means to be a wife is what they learned in the home growing up. The most concentrated classroom of learning what it means to be a husband is what they learned from their mom and dad, what was modeled by their dad, you know, when, when uh, the son was growing up. And that can be a good thing. That can be a very good thing. Or that can be a not-so-good thing. You know, and, and, and the possibilities are that if you're just going to kind of approach married life in an autopilot fashion without really extending a whole lot of intentionality and effort into it, you're just going to do what comes natural, you're going to resemble, if you're the man, if you're the husband, you're going to resemble your dad in the way you treat your wife, you're going to resemble him more than you're going to be different from him. And the same thing for the bride. And like I said, that can be a very good thing. But if it's not going to be a very good thing, then there needs to be a lot more attention being given, you know, to, to uh, correct and improve on the areas that need to be improved. I very much do believe that this is part of an inheritance that parents give their children. And it goes beyond children, might I add, as far as our grandparents that are in this room. It involves grandparents too, because I have lost track of the number of times that I have been in premarital counseling with a couple, and uh, you know, and I keep trying to focus attention during certain segments of it, you know, on their parents and what they learned from their parents and stuff like this. And, uh, and maybe it wasn't a real good experience as far as the parents go, but uh, the, this, this bride and the groom that I'm meeting with, they keep referencing their grandparents because they really admire their grandparents and they really want to have something like what their grandparents had, the kind of relationship they had, the golden anniversary, the 60th year uh, wedding anniversary, that sort of thing. They want to have that kind of relationship. So don't underestimate you know, uh, yourself as a grandparent. Don't look at this and say, okay, well, I've already raised my kids, so that has no relevance to me. Oh, yeah, it very well does have a whole lot of relevance as far as the next generation is concerned. Okay, so this is part of what we're passing on. Another uh, possibility as far as inheritance, a sense of right and wrong? Absolutely. The Bible is pretty clear about um, what is right and what is wrong. And boy, now that is needed more than ever in the mixed up world that we're living in. You know, we've been seeing this trend happening for all of my life, and I would assume you've seen it all of your life. And if anything, it has been speeding up as of late because it just seems like 
um, what, what we used to think of that was right is now considered wrong, and what was wrong is now considered right. And it just seems like so many things are being shifted in a very questionable way, especially in regards to some of the principles that we read and that we hold to that come from the Word of God. And so it is very important right now, you know, that parents and grandparents you know, are really developing a healthy sense of right and wrong in their kids and, and, and their grandkids. And that may not be something that, that the next generation or two they pick up on immediately run with. It may be something that it seems like they balk, they kind of turn away from and resist. But when the time comes down the road when they realize that what they thought was right when they realize that's just going to lead them to heartache and maybe a dead end down the road, they will reconsider the seeds that were established in their life by your example at that time. Now, that might be 5, 10 years from now. That may be 25 years from now. So don't underestimate, you know, your example in regards to um, the way you approach life. Uh, as far as what is right and what is wrong. And kind of akin to that would be this next one, an understanding of what truly matters in life. For a lot of people, the way they approach life, that, that, that it's all about uh, being successful uh, in life. It's all about uh, being comfortable and successful and stockpiling possessions. That's kind of all one and the same. Getting ahead in life, you know, everything that that encompasses. Well, Jesus kind of addressed that more than once. One of the very clear times was in Luke chapter 12 when he said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's not what the essence of life is all about. Stuff and more stuff. And the more stuff you have, the more successful you are in life. You know, is that, is that really what you want, you know, to instill within your children and within your grandchildren? Is that kind of a mentality? Because that is, that is headed a direction that is certainly different than what is being taught in Scripture. And so whether you realize it or not, you do have that influence and you do have that power. To, um, to instill some of those kinds of values, the right kinds of values in your kids. Another thing regarding inheritance would be um, a genuine relationship with God, what that actually looks like. Remember, Dr. Fritz said, example, example, example. Now, your kids, and I would assume your grandkids, they, they would know if you claim to be a Christian. Now, you may be in your more... Um, honest moments, you know, will tell someone, say, you know, I'm not a very good Christian. I'm pretty inconsistent, and I wish I was better, you know, in the way that I approach things in my life because I seem to compromise too much. So, you know, may, maybe with a friend you will confide in them and share that kind of stuff, but you very well may not be telling that to your grandkids or your kids. And so they are, are hearing or seeing growing up with the understanding that you are a Christian. And so they watch and they see your life, everything about your life that they're exposed to. And they're making notes on that, that this is what a Christian looks like. This is what a relationship with God looks like. You know, and there's some, pos or there's some negative possibilities, you know, with that, that, that you, you could 
very well be driving a thought within them that, that oh, yeah, the Christians I've ever known have been hypocrites because they're always compromising. I mean, they may have that kind of a mindset, and so they might not have a whole lot of interest. You know, but then again, on the other end of things, you have the opportunity to make this book come alive to your kids and your grandkids. Sometimes in many ways that, that far surpasses, you know, the, the actual hearing it read because they're seeing it modeled right in front of them. Don't underestimate, you know, the amount of influence that you can have as a parent. As, as a grandparent, when your kids and your grandkids, when they see you reading the Bible, when they hear you talking about the Bible, when, when they pick up on maybe over here, you know, you uh, trying to make a pretty critical decision, big decision in your life, and you are referencing principles that comes from God's word, they will be making notes of that. And like I said earlier, even though they may choose a different course, a different direction, a different path for their life, you know, once they get to that point of that eye-opening moment of, oh, okay, this wasn't in my best interest, this wasn't a good choice, and that now all of a sudden the example that their grandparent or their parent had set so many years earlier are going to be all the more important. You know, that's the kind of thing I want you to be thinking about. You know, the kind of inheritance that you're leaving. You know, yeah, well, hopefully you can leave a house and you, you can leave some acreage or some money or whatever to your kids or your grandkids. But, man, there's stuff far more important than that to be leaving to your kids. And we've just touched, we've just kind of touched on a few of those, a starter list uh, in a manner of speaking. Now, I say that to say that if you are out and about and you are hardly ever spending any time around your kids, around your family, then chances are greatly reduced that they're going to be learning stuff like that in a meaningful way. If you're hardly ever around because you always got things to do and places to be, even if you're living according to some of those things in that little bu short bullet list that I've got on the screen, even if you're, you're living according to that, if you're hardly ever around, how, how are your kids going to pick up on that? How are your grandkids, you know, if you're never with them, how are they going to pick up on that? And that's why the main point of this message, we come right back to this. Your family needs you spending time with them. Your family, and I'm talking about your spouse, I'm talking about your kids, I'm talking about your grandkids. And for some of you, you know, family, you guys are really tight maybe with your sister, your brother, or, or a niece, or what. I mean, family can be, be even broader in a, in a significant, meaningful way. Now, it's real easy for people. And I'll be honest here, especially with younger people, it's real easy to start, you know, kind of arguing the point that, well, you know, what, what I try to do with my family is I try to give them quality time. I may not always be able to give them quantity time, but I really try to focus in on the quality time. Now, back when I was in my 20s and I was just starting my family, you know, my boys are being born and all this kind of stuff. Man, that's, that's, I probably used that probably more than once. I probably even included it in a sermon somewhere along the line. The value of quality time and how you need to schedule it in. Well, I'm just going to be honest here. 
live and learn on a few things. You know, here I am, uh, not in my 20s or 30s or 40s. Uh, we'll just stop with that. Um, you know, here it is, you know, several decades later, looking back. It's not that well-defined. You cannot intentionally just design when quality time is going to happen. It just doesn't work that way. People don't work that way. I'll just give you one illustration. We used to do Christmas cards. Now, we haven't done Christmas cards, you know, in many years. But, uh, um, but you know, we lived two states away from any of our relatives and everything. And so it seemed even more important because we only saw them once or twice a year. So, so back in those days, we did Christmas cards. And, and you always wanted to include a picture, right? This was no digital pictures back in those days. You know, it was all with, with a, a film and all of this. And so, so you had to take multiple pictures, hope one of them turn out, pick the best one and make duplicate copies, right? Stick it in all of your Christmas cards. And uh, usually when I knew we were going to be doing that, which would be like on a Saturday morning or something, I would, I would tell Colette, I'd say, hey, this Saturday morning, we're going to do this. We're going to take family picture. We really need to do it in order to have the turnaround time to get it sent out for people to get it by Christmas. And so uh, uh, this Saturday morning, sometime around 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, is when we're going to have this picture taken. I'd probably even tell the boys about it, although they, they you know, didn't care and didn't listen. But uh, um, so, so anyway, it was on the calendar. It was scheduled. It's kind of like quality time. We had it scheduled. We knew when this was going to be, and it was going to be a picture that was really going to capture, you know, the love and the joy and in our little family and, and all of this. And some of you guys know exactly where I'm going with this. Invariably, what would happen is that on that morning, as we were getting up, you know, and we wouldn't let the boys have anyone spend the night or anything like that because, you know, this was priority for that Saturday morning. Well, invariably, you know, someone would wake up in a bad mood. Someone would be cranky and all irritable, you know, and, uh, and usually as someone was the boy, one of the boys, although Colette had her moments too. So, uh, uh, so anyway, we, we, would, we would, you know, have to deal with this. You know, here it is, getting the camera. I even had this miniature little tripod and everything. And, and when the boys were born, I had asked, any Christmas gift be channeled into cash because I need to buy a quality camera for this very purpose, taking pictures and all. So I had this miniature little tripod and had this Canon AE-1 program camera and, and everything that you could set the timer and I had just enough time to get it in the picture. And, and uh, um, But yet, you know... Uh, it's it's kind of funny in a sad way how this works that uh, um, the other day we were going through some of the old photo albums of when the boys were real young and uh, and I was seeing some of the pictures that were used during those years for these Christmas cards and man they brought these memories back and I remembered the way that morning played out I remember what was happening just 20 minutes before that picture and so-and-so was bawling their eyes out, or they were all mad. Boys were fighting with one another, and, and uh, you know, and then it just came time. Just sit here and look happy and smile in the camera, you know. 
And uh, then you can have anything you want, all the ice cream you want to eat or whatever, you know, afterwards. And, uh, you know, and then there were these forced smiles and, and you know how that works. Well, see, that's kind of what, what trying to schedule quality time is like. You know, you put it on calendar and say, okay, you know, we're not really being able to do much of anything this week because this is going on, this is going on, this is going on. But on Friday night between 6 o'clock and 9 o'clock, that's going to be quality time. Then guess what happens on Friday night? You know, so-and-so was having a birthday party and all the kids were being invited over there, but your little Johnny can't because he's got to be at home with his family, you know? And so, so you know what the atmosphere is going to be like in the home. All of a sudden, what you were going to be very intentional in doing just isn't doing. Quality time is found within the context of quantity time. And uh, once in a while, man, you'll hit it. You'll, you'll hit it and you'll hit a home run. But a lot of times, yeah, it, did, it just didn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out. But you swing at enough balls and you, you'll connect on some. That's kind of the principle here. Spending time together is a key, a key element that contributes to a strong family. It helps with bonding. It helps with connecting. It helps with creating shared experiences. And it's important to note, we don't have an endless supply of opportunities like that. Even though it might seem like you do, I mean, people that are my generation and older, we know you don't have an endless supply. Because we look back over our shoulders and we're just like, wow, where did all that time go? Where did all those years go? But when you're on the young end, just, you know, kind of in the middle of it or starting out, and it just looks like you have an endless supply of it. You don't. Moses, in the one psalm that he wrote, said these words in Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are. Help us to spend them as we should. Just two verses earlier than that, he was saying that uh, we will live to be 70, maybe 80 if we're strong. Okay, so, so that's kind of what set up this statement when he said, teach us to number our days. The New Testament says something kind of similar, just different terminology. James chapter 4 says, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We're talking about the brevity of life. Old Testament and New Testament talks about this concept, the brevity of life. And so, so let's number our days like what Moses was saying here in Psalm 90. If you live to be 70 years old, you will have lived approximately 25,500 days. It's actually a little bit more than that, but you know, but that seems like such a large number. It just seems like an endless supply of days. So let's break it down a little bit more and take a closer look in, in search of this concept, numbering our days. Let's talk about a week's time. You have 168 hours in a week. That's the same amount I have in my week. It doesn't matter what age difference there is between you and me. It doesn't matter, you know, that I'm a male. Maybe you're a female. It, none of that stuff matters. 
In this, we are all the same. We have 168 hours available to us in a week. Now, people that have broken this all down, they've given the averages based on their studies. And what they say is that 56, on the average, 56 of those hours will be spent sleeping. Now, some of you, you know, when you go home, you know, from here, uh, Ron, you know, you, you're probably going to, um, you're probably going to, uh, right after you eat lunch, just, I'm just going to sit and rest here a moment. And you're not even counting that in your nighttime sleep. But, uh, you know, there may be a 45-minute nap that takes place there. So for some of us, you know, that 56 hours maybe should be a larger number. But there are always a few people that get by with six hours of sleep a day or something. So, so this is the average, 56 hours sleeping in a week's time. So we need to change the 168 hours to be realistic now we're looking at 112 hours available to us. Okay, but you take a shower, right? I hope, you know, or a bath or something, you know, like that. Plus you eat. And they say that the average is when people are eating and like cleaning up from their meal and showering, personal hygiene, stuff like that, that takes 24 hours a week on the average. All right, so let's subtract that from the working number of hours available to us. Now we're down to 88 hours a week. Okay, well, I mean, you need to pay bills, right? You need to have a job. And so let's use the number 50, 50 hours a week. That would include uh, the time on the clock that you're working and time commuting. Now, I know full well that there are some of you in here, 50 doesn't touch the number of hours that you work, work because you work more than that. But we're just kind of working on an average here. 50 hours a week. So now we need to subtract that with the number we're working with. Because remember, we're trying to come up with what is the kind of quantity time available for us to invest in our family, to do things and shared experiences and everything with our family. Now we're down to 38 hours. Now you also need to consider things like, uh, and I'll just use the old word, chores. You know, you got chores to do. If it was a different time of year, uh, shoveling snow this week might be part of that. Instead, it's going to be mowing the lawn, you know, may be part of the chores. It, it may be involving things like uh, feeding the dog or taking out the trash and, and various things like that. So we'll take a fairly conservative number there and say four or five hours a week being invested in things that could fall under the heading of chores. Now we're down to 33 hours a week. Now I can continue to whittle that down with some other pretty predictable things that you invest time in, but let's just stop there. 33, and we'll call them discretionary hours that are available. Now you started with 168, but you really didn't have 168 to be able to invest in your family because you had other responsibilities and obligations that you couldn't just skip out on. And so now you're at 33 discretionary hours. We have not even talked about what you're doing right now, being in church. We haven't talked about like morning devotions or evening devotions, you know, time you spend in the word or time, personal time with the Lord in prayer. We haven't talked about, we haven't even talked about TV at all yet in this. We haven't talked about any hobby that you might have that you like to engage in. Um, and we haven't talked about family time, you know, and playing catch in the yard or going to the kids' ball game or going to the zoo or 
You know, we haven't talked about that kind of stuff. But all we have to work on, work with, is 33 discretionary hours. You know, and the number probably is even less than that. You see, therein is the challenge. There will always be something else to do. There will always be somewhere else you can be. It will always be that way. I say that from experience. There will always be something else demanding your time. So if the Lord and your family are going to be a priority in your life, you're going to have to be able to make some hard decisions. There's going to need to be some times you're just flat out going to need to say no. No, for the sake of your family. Your kids are only going to be with you for a few years, and so you need to make the most of it because those few years that your kids or your grandkids are around uh, is going to pass really quickly. It's going to seem like it's in the blink of an eye. Maybe it would be helpful if you turn to your neighbor right now and just say, you don't have very long to live. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't do that. That's, that is creepy. That's, uh, even though it's true. Um, let me show you a picture of somebody. Those of you that know me know I, I don't follow baseball. I've never really been a baseball fan. Well, in recent years, um, there were a couple of times when the Royals are in the World Series. I, I am a baseball fan. So, uh, um, but uh, no, I, I really don't follow baseball much. But you can't help but know and recognize some faces and names. This is Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, many of you recognize that as soon as you saw his picture come up on the screen. Well, in 1999, he was invited to the Players' Choice Awards. And, uh, and, and, and what I'm getting ready to tell you, it caught my attention, even though normally, you know, it's kind of like, isn't there something going on tonight, Hollywood party thing? Uh, whatever that is, I never pay attention to that. But I also never pay attention to stuff like this unless there's something really noteworthy that is happening. And in 1999, Ken Griffey Jr., um, he really got my attention. He was invited to the Players' Choice Awards, uh, and he was going to be presented with the award of uh, the Player of the Decade, which is a pretty significant award from my understanding. This was going to be nationally televised. He beat out players at the time like Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and, and some others. Well, anyway, when he found out, you know, when the award was going to be given, he told him, no, he decided not to go. He said, no. Some of you, you remember this? Okay. It wasn't that long ago, right? Um, 21 years, 22 years ago. Um, but, uh, but he turned it down and said, no, he had something more important to do. And what was that something more important? It was Trey, his five-year-old son, was going to play in his first ever baseball game. And so uh, Ken Griffey Jr., uh, he skipped out on what many would consider to be the award of a lifetime. He skipped out on being present for that because he wasn't about to miss his five-year-old's first-ever game. Man, that almost made me want to be a baseball fan, you know, when I heard that. 
It was just like, how cool is that? If you want to build a strong family, you've got to be willing to invest time into it, to invest time in them. Some of you may already feel like, well, it's too late for that because I don't have a healthy family and uh, things are really unhealthy as far as marriage goes, as far as children, relationships, and all. Well, if that be the case, let, let me kind of close out our time and lead into communion with, with giving you uh, some words of encouragement from Jesus. This is something Jesus said. Uh, it's not only found here in Luke 6, it's also found in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. He said, do to others as you would have them do to you. This one statement, Jesus gave the key to relating well with others. To whether it be people in your workplace, people in your neighborhood, uh, but certainly people in your home. It is so simple, yet it's oftentimes overlooked. It's not that complicated. Jesus gave the perfect rule for establishing quality human relationships. It's called the golden rule. I'm not sure exactly why. It just got that name sometime during the 17th century. But if you are serious about connecting and getting along with others, then you need to intentionally put yourself in their place and think of things from their perspective and then treat them as you would want to be treated if you were them. Treat them accordingly. You say, yeah, but my spouse didn't treat me that way. My spouse is harsh with me. My spouse nags. My spouse just doesn't really care about my opinion and snaps at me just totally out of the blue. My kids are disrespectful. Whenever I say something, they go in one ear, out the other ear. Their sarcasm stings, you know, because that's what they intend for it, it to do is to sting. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard to do this with my family in the way that they are. That's exactly the point. That's exactly what makes this so impactful. If you read the context preceding verse 31 and following verse 31, you will see that's exactly what Jesus was talking about, is that this is the way we need to be with people who are not kind to us, people that seemingly mistreat us. You don't get any points for being nice to people who are nice to you. Okay, that's easy to do. Anybody can do that. But what Jesus was talking about here is he was talking about doing nice, being nice to people who aren't that way with you. And so, yeah, that's going to take effort. That's going to take prayer. That's going to take reliance upon the Holy Spirit, you know, working in your life in order for you to arise to the occasion. But that is what is going to be impactful in your marriage. It's going to be impactful in your home. It's going to be impactful for your kids, you know, whether they're still living at home or whether they're out of the home, for your grandkids. It may, it may be a period of time before their eyes are opened to be able to see that some of the choices and the direction of their life wasn't in their own best interest as they thought it was, but it's at that time that your example and your kindness and, and the way you were to them is going to have a lasting impact. And it may be 20 years after you've passed on. It may be something that lives on in your grandkids or even your great-grandkids that you never really have an opportunity to meet personally. But you see, it is impactful. 
It's exactly the way Jesus was with us. He loved us when we were unlovely. Jesus didn't wait and say, well, you know, I'm thinking about leaving heaven and going to earth and dying on the cross, but I need to see that they really want me to do that. I need to see that they're worthy of that. Jesus didn't wait for that. He didn't wait for us to become lovely. He didn't wait for us to have a good heart. No, he took the initiative. And he did the unthinkable by coming and dying on the cross. Even when humanity, by and large, you know, our attitudes and actions were totally in the wrong place. But Jesus took the initiative. And thank God he did. Because we are where we are today with the hope that we have. The hope not only in life, but in eternity. During this time of communion, we reflect on that when we take the bread and we take the cup and we eat and we drink and we're reminded of what Jesus did on our behalf. Might we celebrate that? Might we also be inspired to rise to the occasion and to reflect some Christ-likeness into our own families? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity to be able to be here as a family of believers. And uh, Lord, we're just thankful so much for our Lord Jesus Christ and for what he did on our behalf when he went to the cross. We celebrate that. And might our gratitude be expressed in more than a prayer. Might it be expressed in the way we live our lives and the way we treat those who are closest to us especially. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.